From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Crew lands full banking license. Credit Suisse Bank found guilty over money laundering charges. And we answer questions from the Fintech Insider mailbag. All this and much, much more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word about something that we're cooking up here at 11FS. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Welcome to episode 642 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Brewer and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Kate Moody, who is the Global Strategy Director of Customer Experience at 11FS. How's it going, Kate? Yeah, it's good. I was planning on having a really pure week this week to recover from some festival antics at the weekend, but you persuaded me to have a beer. So that's, that's one astray. horse fallen off straight yeah. away. So do we'll apologize for that. How was Glastonbury? It was good. It was good. Yeah, it was very hot. So as a as a person of Irish descent, hot does not go well with me. But yeah. I, no, you can't complain. If it's not muddy, you can't complain. It was brilliant. So. And did you go and watch the sort of Paul McCartney loving that was all of the great and the good from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Or were you just I like... I did. I did. It was very long. It was like nearly three hours. So yeah, and a brilliant but sort of endurance kind of event. But yeah. yeah. And it was great. He's kind of becoming like the Ken Dodd of the the sort of rock and roll world, isn't he? It's just like a eight-hour set or something, but... Uh, I'm more an EastEnders girl than a Coronation Street one, so that, that reference has gone straight over my di- head. Very different Ken. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everybody, if you're if international listeners... Google Ken Dodd. Like, uh, uh, Kate's just proved how young she is in that sense, but we'll, oh, we'll come back to this at another point, Kate, anyway. Uh, as always, we're joined by some super duper awesome guests making a welcome return to Fintech Insider. We have Jess Katz, who is the head of financial crime project delivery at FinTrail. How's it going, Jess? Really well. It's so good to be back on the show. It's been a while. Um, yes, I'm the head of financial crime project delivery at FinTrail. We're a financial crime consultancy, so I hopefully can... I mean, it's great to talk about tasty money laundering stories, so I'm looking forward to, to getting to the Credit Suisse one. Uh, but anyone, if anyone's interested in Fintrail, we're a, an anti-financial crime consultancy, and I head up the excellent team of uh, core consultants there. Very, very cool. Great to have you back on the show. Uh, next up, we have a Fintech Insider debut for Andrea De Cotardo. Did I say that right, Andrea? Not too bad at all. All right, we'll go with that. Uh, CEO over at Crew. Um, welcome to the show, Andrea. Well, I mean, we'll get into what you guys do in a little bit, but um, if you want to give us the, the lowdown on Crew. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, pleasure to be here and great to meet you guys. Um, yeah, like the 22nd, um, Crew is a newly authorized digital bank. Uh, quite recently, 24th of June was our date. 
And we are on a mission to build a bank that truly connects people financially, enable them to be financially better off and drives a positive impact to the world whilst doing that. That's us. Fantastic. Well, we should get on with the news and you are the first news story. So we're going to talk about that a about that a little bit more. It was covered in a number of different places. AltFi was the first one that we saw, but Crew lands full banking license. So Digital Bank Crew has just won its full UK banking license ahead of plans to launch personal current accounts in the coming months. Having launched its prepaid offering in 2019, the bank racked up 23,000 customers, which will migrate to new accounts for free. The startup has secured £26 million in Series B funding at the start of the month, which is said went a long way to support the current accounts which would come as early as this summer. Crew is only one of two banks to have been granted a banking license with a personal current account since August 2016. Uh, Andrea, you're going to know way more than we do on this one, but I mean, what does this mean for you guys in terms of that shift from, you know, prepaid cards to to a full banking license? Well, it's it's huge, right? It's probably the, big, the biggest milestone we have achieved so far. And we've been working towards that for a very long time. And I'm sure we'll get into that later on. But it's key for us, right? Like now we are a fully authorized bank. Now we will shortly be able to start offering personal current account to our customer is a different type of product. There is a different level of a different variety of product that you can offer and features a different level of security for customer. We tend to see that as a kind of the real starting point for us as a bank and as a company. Exciting. And I mean, it's by no means a, an easy process. This isn't a, uh, you mail off a slip and a, a license pops up in the post, is it? It's a, no. a long, arduous thing. And, and rightly so, right? You know, if, if everybody Absolutely. could do it, it would be a, probably a bad idea, wouldn't it? So uh, how hard was that process to, to go through? Exceptionally hard. I mean, the way I describe it to my friends or my family when they ask is by far the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Like no question asked. Uh, and as you said, is, is rightly so, right? Like if you're, if you're becoming a fully authorized bank, especially if you're going after personal current account, you're going to hold people money. It's a big deal, right? So there is a lot that the Bank of England, uh, basically PRA and FCA, they need to check. There is a lot, a lot that you need to prove as a, as a bank from, you know, the regulatory business plan, the capital, the liquidity procedure, a lot around FINCRA and AML. Uh, I know that like my team actually knows Jess and they've been engaging with her, uh, through the different networks. So there is a lot to be done and it's long and hard and painful. Uh, but there is a reason for it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? We, we sort of think like, you know, post 2008, you know, with the, the changing of the regulation and, you know, new sort of pro competition landscape that there was like a flurry of licenses. But, but the, you know, the point where you're, uh, you're only one of two organizations that have been given a license since 2016. That's pretty amazing. I mean, it, again, it, it shows how difficult it is to get through that process. And, and again, rightly so. But so what, I mean, what do you want to offer? Obviously, with the prepaid cards that you've been doing, and now you can go to a full banking license. What are you guys hoping to, to, to add to the market? Because obviously, you know, it's quite a competitive landscape now in terms of the, the current account space. So why, why would someone come to you as opposed to a, a Halifax or a Lloyd's or whoever? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. I mean, what we are aiming to do is, well, first of all, we are targeting a very specific segment of the market, uh, especially at the beginning. We are really targeting the millennials and the Gen Z, which I fe we, we feel looking at all the data and the analysis out there are kind of unserved uh, so far by both traditional and, and new banks. 
And the whole point of Chris is that we have started by looking at the needs of this customer and what they want from their bank. And that's how we've built our, our USP and how we, we have been developing the bank. So as I said at the beginning, in a nutshell, we need to really connect these people financially. Uh, I mean, especially the youngest one, they are always sharing money. And it's not just splitting a bill, like, you know, they might be lending money, borrowing money, saving together for like, you know, to buying a car or whatever. And there isn't a solution that actually fit that. So that's one component of it. The other one is like, the, we really want to give our customer the feeling that we have their back, right? If you ask most customers, what do you think about banks? A lot of people will actually answer you, well, they're kind of there, I need them, but I think they're taking advantage of me, right? I don't feel they have my back. We want to flip this around, right? We want our customer to feel that crew is there for them. We have their back, whether it's supporting them to have a better financial outcome, whether it's directing them to the right product at the right price for what they need, or many more things around that. And, and the last element is around the positive impact that I mentioned, right? Like, yes, we are a bank. We want to be a profitable and viable bank. But in the process, we also want to do something good for the planet we all share, whether it's from an environment perspective as we started with the tree planting or whether it's just actually helping the community, whether it's like, you know, mental health problem, whether it's like low financial literacy problem, literally anything that we can do that has some good. Super interesting. I mean, it's um, it really is an interesting space, and for for niches, you know, I say millennials and and uh, and, and broader as a as a niche. That's a lot of people, right? But yeah, I mean, I mean, Kate, the the idea of you know, we all say you know, underserved, overcharged, overwhelmed. You know, there is a there's lots of people in lots of these different categories, isn't there? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you know, we tend to think of the UK as like a small country in terms of the world, but we're still a very highly populated country. So you know, over sixty million. I think the census pop census figures have, have just come out and the population has grown. Um, so yeah, it's definitely an attractive market. And I think as we see the proliferation of more and more sort of banking as a service providers, I think that cost of getting to market is only hopefully going to reduce. So the option to serve some of these niches more cost effectively should hopefully increase. And we'll see a better fit between you know, the, the type of vision that you know, Andrea has of serving a particular audience with particular features and particular services. You know, that's going to become much more commercially viable as, as it becomes easier to scale up specific propositions. So I think that's very exciting. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I had a good stalk of your of your website, Andrea. So I'm, I'm keen to. I, I fit in that millennial category by myself. So I was interested to kind of have a look at your have a look at your feature. I thought it was very interesting. Obviously, you've got some some partnerships that you've yep. launched already. I thought it was an interesting combination. Obviously, you've got the the lockbox partnership in terms of the um, you know, what they're offering, but then you've also got a partnership with the five aside football leagues. So I mean, yeah, what's what's kind of the ambition for the for the partnerships? It seems like a really interesting mix there that, that stood out to me. Uh, is is a combination of different things, right? Like, for example, uh, some of the partnership that, that we already have and more that we will get is like from a customer acquisition perspective, right? Like if you think about the five-a-side football, we were thinking, okay, what are what is one of the most common use cases where actually people need to share a lot of money? And, you know, playing soccer, playing football is one of those, right? You're a team captain, you're probably coordinating a group of what, 10 people, and every week you're like, you know, checking on WhatsApp who's coming to play, and then you are the one paying all the fees, but then it's a mess. You need to coordinate, okay, this day that guy was there, that guy wasn't, and then probably after the match you go out for a couple of parties so there is a lot of, of messiness around the, all, coordinating all of that with money. And, and when we started the conversation with Power League, they actually told us that the number one drop of reason for any team from season to season is that the captain at some point said, okay, you know what? 
I'm done. I'm fed up trying to deal with all of that. And that's where we thought that our product as uh, crew in, well, was a prepaid when we started, even more so now as a current account, can really help the customers there and solve the problem. Because you can just set up a group and then it's all automated and intuitive and you can just be focusing on playing football other than, you know, trying to deal with all this mess around the money. It's amazing those those little features that are, you know, it's a a treasurer in your pocket type uh, ability in that sense. But as you say, it's solving a real problem for people. It's uh, solving a bit of hassle, probably like preserving some friendships in that sense as well in terms of uh, things that are there. But I mean, where, where are you, uh, the, the sort of article mentions that uh, uh, the sort of customer size that you you managed to get onto the uh, the, the, the prepaid, so 23,000 uh, customers. What is your aspiration in the market? Because obviously, like you say, you find a, a great niche, you find the ability for them to to recommend you in that sense there's a there's a certain virality that comes with that yeah well first of all uh, yes we are very happy with that we got to the 23000 our ambitions were much higher than that but in all honesty we had to comply with the with the cap that has been given to us by by the PRA and the FCA right as we were in the middle of the application they've seen in the past how you know some kind of prepaid or e-money product got a huge number of customers and they weren't too happy with the way they've handled migration or the security around the money. So we couldn't actually go over that. And, and we wanted to make sure we didn't breach that. So we had a bit of a buffer with the 23 versus the 25. Now our ambition is like, we still have some things to, to be tweaked. I mean, uh, Kate, if you checked our website, hopefully you check it fairly late yesterday. So the waiting list was already up. Uh, we're now not taking any more prepaid application. There is a waiting list for the current account. Uh, we are doing a soft launch with friends and family and staff member to test things out in the next in the next days and weeks. And then we are going to do be doing the public launch, starting with the waiting list at, uh, at some point uh, in um, September, October. And then from there, we have quite ambitious plan in terms of acquiring acquiring customers. Very cool. I mean, it sounds like, Kate, we need to talk to Andrea after the show to bump you up that waiting list then, potentially, <laughs> but uh, we'll come back to that later on. Jess, what, what do you think on this one? The, obviously, the, that transition from, you know, prepaid card with all of the, the protections and, and everything that's in place for from a customer's perspective to uh, a full current account, that, I mean, that has pretty significant impacts, not just for what uh, Andrea and the team can do, but but for the customers themselves, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think from looking at it from a more financial crime type lens, there are so many different things and so many different crime types and typologies that you're then going to have to be looking out for and making sure that those controls are all working effectively to make sure that you're spotting them as the customers using the product in a different way. But I did want to pick up, I thought just very quickly, one of the comments we made previously about banking as a service and all the opportunities there um, to sort of provide these products in different ways. There's also some risks here because some of the banking as a service structures haven't quite got the kind of AML financial crime space quite right versus when you get your full banking license, it's very clear what the control framework has to look like. Um, so I think in a, in a way, yes, there are good things about lots of the different uh, products, e-money, payments products we're seeing, banking as a service, all very exciting, but I, we still haven't quite got there with the financial crime frameworks in some of those. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? That that sort of proliferation of, uh, even in a B2B sense, in terms of the vendor landscape, actually does cause some risk to a certain degree. So, I mean, uh, I did a foreshadowing in a, a new episode of Fintech Insider that will come out. I did an interview with Dan McCrum this week, who was the uh, journalist who uncovered the Wirecard uh, 
fraud. Can I say fraud issues? Yeah, I think it, I think it's proven now, isn't it? So it's fraud's proven. okay. Yeah, yeah, was yeah. proven. Uh, so uh, you know, there was there's definitely sort of risk in that sense in terms of uh, you know bank as a service weaving together other people's experiences potentially can can cause more problems in in some instances. But but I guess at the same time, actually, it gives you the agility to. I know uh, you know from from Wirecard the the changes over the, over the weekend that somebody like Curve was able to do. You know, it just shows the agility in the systems from a fintech perspective is actually a, an amazing advantage in that sense. Right, we are going to have to move on, I'm afraid, because there's a, a lot other, of other ones. And I reckon, Jess, you're going to go really long on this next one. It's like right up your street, it really is. Uh, a story that was covered in a number of different places, but BBC News was where we picked this one up, was Credit Suisse Bank found guilty over money laundering charges. So Credit Suisse has been found guilty and fined for its involvement in money laundering related to a Bulgarian drugs ring. Switzerland's criminal court found that the bank had done had not done enough to stop criminals profiting from cocaine trafficking into Europe. Uh, it was fined $1.7 million in order to pay $15 million to the Swiss government. The court heard evidence around the bank's role in accepting millions of euros in bank deposits between 2004 and 2008, which it said was full of red flags. Prosecutors said that Credit Suisse employee and former tennis player Elena, man, I'm going to murder this, Papalov, oh, I'm not even going to try, a previous tennis player, uh, and even a, a relationship with a former Bulgarian wrestler who was a major figure in the European cocaine smuggling ring. Uh, the court heard that Elena regularly collected bags full of cash, uh, some amounting to the equivalent of £400,000 from people well known to the wrestler. The bank denies wrongdoing and said it would appeal against the, this ruling. I mean, Jess, like, a big bag full of £400,000 seems like a bit of a red flag, doesn't it, in terms of um, you know money being sort of washed into a system. But uh, uh, I've been watching a lot of Ozark lately, so this has very much the Netflix vibes to it. But um, what do you make of this? I mean, there's so much to unpack here, and I have actually just started Ozark myself. So yeah, I'm definitely at the forefront of this. But not only are the bags of cash big red flags, it's the assassination of two of those clients as well. Pretty big red flags here. Um, but I think this case is really quite significant for a few reasons, and I'll, I'll very quickly outline why I think that that is. But there are also a couple of reasons why I think it's just not actually weirdly that significant either, because we've seen this so many times. We've seen the bags of cash. We've seen the money laundering. We've seen the fines. We've seen Prince Charles, you know, getting bags of cash recently. So there's plenty of stories in this space. But there are a number of reasons wait, why this wait, case... How, how did I miss that? When did Prince Charles get a bag of cash? Well, that's a recent story that also came out recently. He's he's received some bags of cash, some in Fortnum and Mason bags. Um, I think from a, a some it was a prince of a former prime minister of Qatar. I think uh, he claims it went straight into his charity, but Coots just didn't ask any questions when these bags of cash arrived in Fortnum and Mason bags. I'm not. I think there's going to be an investigation, so I'm not going to make any other comments. He yeah. said he wouldn't do it now, and that's all that matters, David. Time allegedly. Um, yeah, that that's weird. Like, anyway, moving moving back to uh, Credit Suisse. Totally weird. I think we could maybe have another episode when that investigation comes out. Uh, but back to Credit Suisse, there are a couple of reasons why this is actually really important. And I think the first one is it's happened in Switzerland, right? Switzerland is a, a secrecy jurisdiction, and this kind of sets a completely new tone. It's a domestic bank being found guilty of of corporate crime of money laundering. Um, and it's also come a really bad time for Credit Suisse. I mean, they had the Suisse secrets leak uh, towards the start of this year, you know, hidden wealth of 30,000 
clients involved in trafficking, money laundering. So, I mean, it's just setting a bit of a new tone where you're actually seeing um, the Swiss regulator starting to do something about it. And another reason is because you're seeing this fine, not just against Credit Suisse as an institution, but also against the individual itself. So you've got this former relationship manager who left the bank, I think, in 2010. Historically, now coming back to be, I mean, she received a suspended fine and a suspended prison sentence. But that sets a pretty strong tone of personal liability for a bunch of Swiss private bankers. I used to work in Luxembourg with a lot of Swiss private bankers, and I can tell you this should definitely start to to change some of the behaviours. And then the third reason is just because of the historic nature of the fine. This didn't happen recently. This was between 2004 and 2008. So we're looking back at, at quite a historical case here. And they're really digging up some dirt at a time when the, the, the culture was different, the controls were different. And perhaps we're going to see a lot, of, a lot of interesting things start to come out of the woodwork because there was plenty going on at that time. Mm. It's a funny one, isn't it? I mean, 1.7 million doesn't... Uh, and, uh, don't get me wrong, like, if that was in my bank account, it's a lot of zeros, you know what I mean? But like, actually for a giant bank to have been involved in such you know nefarious things in that sense, then it doesn't feel like a very big fine to me. The fine itself, you're absolutely right. The fi- I mean, the fine itself is very small, but the significance is really that the Swiss regulator is making this fine against one of their domestic banks. And I think one of the points that the Swiss regulator made was the, the red flags were just so clear in this case. Um, and I think the challenge here is the relationship manager did actually raise this to her managers, but the culture itself just stopped the um, senior leadership from taking this any further, which is interesting where you see where the uh, responsibility uh, and the accountability is being taken at this stage. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very interesting, the fine is small, but I think it's still significant for those reasons. It's setting a new tone. Mm. I mean, Andrea, I presume if one of your customers turned up with a, a bag full of £400,000, you might question where they've got all that money from uh, rather than just being like, sure, to put it into an account, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, it would be really difficult given they would be fully digital, at least at this stage, so they will not know where to come with a bag of cash. But no, I mean, what Jess said is absolutely right. It's all about what controls you have in place. And, you know, like, you don't even need to go all the way to, you know, a bag full of cash, right? There are all the controls you have at onboarding in terms of KYC and customer due diligence. And then you have all the transaction monitoring. And with all the technology that there is out there now, there is actually a lot that all of us, all banks can actually do to get a pretty good idea of whether a customer is potentially at risk of doing something which is goes either into the financial crime space or even worse into, into the money laundering space. Mm, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, as you said earlier on, Jess, this is not something that, you know, is like, oh my God, this has never happened before. Like actually many UK high street banks have faced very similar accusations, haven't they? I mean, is this a, is this a failing in controls and processes or is it a, a failing in monitoring and checking employees? Like, you know, where, where does the, where is the failing in this process? I think this is a failing of what I would call one of the key controls, and that is culture. Um, So when we're talking about financial crime controls, like Andrea said, we're always talking about KYC, onboarding, customer due diligence, transaction monitoring, screening, all of those great tools. But one of the things that, again, especially in in some of the, the private banks and some of the traditional institutions, 
the culture can be fundamentally wrong. So you need that tone from the top, the messaging from the senior leadership so that everyone in the the business is really working to stop and just look out for those instances of suspicion and potential crime. If you don't have that, no matter how good your tools are, you will always have challenges that come up through the woodwork because you might have insider fraud. You might have insider challenges that some of your tools might not spot. Mm, yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting, and, and as you say, I wonder if this is a, uh, you know, the uh, the scab coming off to a certain degree, and therefore many more of these things will sort of come to the come to the fray. Would have would have liked to have stood behind them in the queue in the in the branch when you when they signed if they were trying to cash in four hundred thousand, it probably would have been quite an interesting, uh, entertaining morning, wouldn't it? It probably would have taken ages as would. well. Like the queue would have really like gone out the door. All fives and tens, it would have been a big bang, wouldn't Blimey, it? Blimey, yeah. No, I can only just imagine it. But I suppose I think this in, in relation to Jess's point, I think this is particularly interesting because. Prior to this being announced, I think Credit Suisse was starting to change the dialogue a bit about their general attitude towards risk-taking. So obviously they've had a bit of a tough time. You know, they've had issues with Greensill, their chair had to resign, lots of scandal and negativity, and they've had a big dent on their profits. So I think they'd just started to roll out this messaging around, we're going to take more risks, we're going to reconnect with some of our more riskier clients. And now they've got to balance that with this. So I think it's going to be really interesting to watch how that plays out over the next couple of months. There's lots of chat about you know, potentially there being an acquisition of Credit Suisse, you know, their their share price has gone down, lots of chat about whether they're going to be bought, who might buy them. Um, so, yeah, really, really interesting to see what happens, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess, if, if anything we've seen in the last, God, decade, it's like, actually, banks can recover from these types of things with lots and lots of above-the-line marketing, <laughs> you know, actually, uh, in terms of, you know, repairing their reputation and getting back out there, you know, actually... I mean, I think a lot of people have forgotten a lot of the things that happened in the financial crisis because, you know, people have moved on, you know, and uh, and the marketing is saying something different and consistently saying something different. But I guess uh, time will tell whether they can repair their reputation and actually repair their profits in this sense as well. All right, we're going to just take a little bit of a quick break and hear from our sponsors. We'll be back with you very shortly. Full Circle is the customer lifecycle intelligence platform that's helping companies in financially regulated industries do better business faster. Financial institutions are under pressure on multiple fronts. Customers are demanding better experiences, competitors are making a grab for market share, regulatory scrutiny is fiercer than ever, and the cost to acquire and serve is high. Full Circle's new white paper explores how customer lifecycle intelligence can help companies find the right customers, accelerate onboarding, and keep them for life. Download it from the link in the podcast description. Hey, folks, welcome back to the show. Let's get on with the next story. So this one is one that was uh, picked up in uh, many of the global press, but Sydney Morning Herald picked it up first. Digital bank Vault, which wanted to change the world of banking, sadly shuts down. So uh, about 6,000 customers who had money with Australian neobank Vault has been told to urgently withdraw their funds before the digital bank starts closing accounts the following week. Vault said it intends to hand its banking license back to the regulator and would return the 100 million Aussie dollars to its customers after it was forced to close due to struggles in raising enough capital during the pandemic. Vault's chief executive, Steve Weston, said on Wednesday it was incredibly sad uh, and an incredibly sad day for the company. And Weston said there had never been a more demanding period of time and a need for competition in the banking market. But issues with raising capital had plagued the neobanks as it tried to take on the major banks. 
Uh, I, mean, I think this is a, I think this is a really sad thing. And actually, I mean, I've seen a lot of articles kind of come out on this one, sort of talking about the the demise of neo banks and you know the the challenger bank period is is over. Um, you know, people are always looking for uh, opportunities to sort of pour um, you know fire on the flames in terms of change in that sense. And I mean, no more than the uh, you know the big Australian banks who are were just hoping all of this stuff would sort of go away. But um, what do you think, Kate? I mean, I, I find this one quite a sad thing. I mean. People have sort of pawned their um, their lives into really sort of trying to change the industry. It's it's sad to see it sort of come to this, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think obviously every time we connect with people who work in the fintech sector in Australia, there is so much passion, uh, such a drive to try and disrupt that incumbent sector and to give Australians a you know, greater choice and, and greater freedom in terms of how they manage their money. Um, so yeah, no, I agree. It's it's very sad. Uh, I have a massive fintech crush on up uh, fintech in Australia, so I think if if they fold as well, I'm, I might not be able to come on the show for a while. I might need to go go lie down for a while. But um, yeah, no, really sad. Um, and you hope that you know that it's just a, a bit of a, a blip, and that actually you know the the fintech sector will learn from what these challenges are. That maybe investors will um, start to understand the opportunity better, or, or these fintechs will understand more how they need to position themselves to, to investors because there's definitely no doubt that Australian customers deserve more choice. Um, and obviously, these fintechs folding doesn't doesn't progress us in that space. So, yeah, sad day. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the first um, bank ever in Australia to, to sort of fold in this way. We had Zinger previously, didn't we? And and as you say, this sort of leaves up and judo to to sort of continue going in the, the way in which they're, you know, trying to disrupt that market. I imagine the big incumbent Australian banks are as we say, sort of breathing a bit of a sigh of relief in terms of, uh, you know, the the challenges aren't sort of breathing down their neck in that sense. But, I mean, Andrew, what do you what do you think in this one? It's um, you probably, uh, you know, commiserate with your fellow challenger banks in this sense, eh? Well, it is sad, as you said, and I agree with you guys. Um, not truly surprising, though, unfortunately, because, like, raising capital is, is very hard for whatever reason, and uh, you're trying to raise capital. Raising capital for a bank is probably 10 times harder. Uh, because a lot of investors don't even want to touch a bank because of many reasons. One of the big reasons is the, is the amount of regulatory capital, which is the capital you need to hold just because you're a bank. From an investor, for, for most investors, in their mind, it's like, okay, that's wasted capital, right? I'm giving money that I'm not going to get a good return on it. So, as I said, very sad. We've seen this happening before, even in the UK, I know at least a couple of quasi-banks that almost made it and just had to, to shut down at the end because the issue was like um, struggling to raise capital. Yeah, it's um, it is it is sad. Jess, what do you what do you think on this one? Is this a? Uh, I mean, many people are painting the uh, the doomsday. You know, like this is the end of fintech in Australia. Like, uh, what do you what do you think? Is that uh, is that likely, or is this just a? Like, some businesses just don't make it. Well, I think we've been hearing these kind of doomsday stories since 2020, haven't we? And we've we're hearing now about fintech winter, mm. and it's all going into decline. And we have sadly in the UK seen. Um, a few fintechs, you know, getting rid of staff. And we are starting to see a little bit of that. But but I think it's more just a product of the challenging markets at the moment. And it's sad, but I don't. not all of them will die and the really great ones will continue on. Um, and I think we'll just see more sort of market competition um, and we'll just have to watch it grow again. It's just a challenging market at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's if you sort of stand back and look at it, uh, I mean, they raised nearly ninety six million, I believe, um, Australian dollars 
to, to get to the point that they get to. Just shows how hard it is, right? This isn't, uh, again, going back to the top story, it's like heavily regulated industry. This stuff is difficult. Like it is a and very costly, yeah, it's a very expensive industry to get into. Like, um, so, and, and actually, Again, the the liquidity required to do it, but also the stability to manage it and maintain it. You know, there's a reason why these things are required. So, uh, super super had, uh, sad on a uh, on a human side in terms of uh, everybody that may have sort of lost their jobs during this period. But uh, but hopefully they'll all go on to super duper cool things uh, with other organisations over there in Australia as well. Uh, if you want to deep dive a little bit more into Aussie fintech, go check out episode five six one of Fintech Insider Insights, where we spoke to a number of the big names in the space, including Revolut Australia, Tier One People, and Fintech Australia as well. The next story that we had was one that was picked up in a few places, but we spotted it over on The Guardian, which is shopping is a nightmare. Uh, How ADHD affects people's spending habits. So research shared exclusively with Guardian Money had laid bare the challenges many people with ADHD face when it comes to their personal finances. The research commissioned by Monzo and conducted by YouGov found that those living with ADHD are four times more likely to frequently impulse spend than those who do not have the condition. 60% of those surveyed who are living with ADHD said they believe it has cost implications for them because of its impact on day-to-day money management, which they estimated to amount over £1,600 a year on average. The, the findings prompted charities to say that the cost of living crisis is sadly uh, affecting a, a huge number of people with this condition. Uh, and the condition in itself is something that is on the rise. Um, there's sort of general public views here that banks should be doing much, much more to support both this condition and and many, many others. Um, to find out a little bit more about this, we heard from, uh, from Monzo's head of vulnerable customers, uh, who is called Natalie Ledwards. Let's hear from them now. It's no secret that people in difficult or different circumstances pay more. What's interesting about these findings for us is that this is the first research of its kind to put a price tag specifically on the financial impact of ADHD. And that ADHD is something that so often goes undiagnosed, so the impact of this will actually be much broader than we realise. And that people don't feel supported by something so essential, their bank. We think it's a great start in terms of what banks could do better to support people with ADHD, to be talking about this more, to raise awareness amongst staff, but also to build trust with customers. Super interesting, isn't it? And and actually, you know, what protections you can put in place uh, to to support people, you know, those services sort of further up in this sense. Bizarrely, humble brag, speaking to Stephen Fry, like, British icon. Um, I know who, who that is. Who suffers from, thank you, uh, who suffers from ADHD himself. He was saying, like, actually, he, uh, when we got into, what do you do? Like, he was just being friendly because he had no idea who it was in any way, shape, or form. And I was like, I work in banking. And he said, actually, like, I go into, you know, uh, um, I'm prone to massive splurges of spending in that sense because of these types of conditions. And it has, you know, it has cost him significantly, I think way more than £1,600 in terms of his uh, his case because of these things. But, I mean, it, it should be relatively simple to build in capability to, you know, help people with these things. Not quite a, you know, are you sure button, but but really being able to put some protection in place in that sense. Um, we spoke a little bit to um, our uh, internal team about this one. Uh, Charlotte 
uh, Faraday, who is product director here at 11FS, who offered a few tips on this basis as well. ADHD is one of the most well-known but poorly understood neurodiverse diagnoses. The good news is that there's a bunch of pretty straightforward things we can do to improve products and services for everyone, not just people with ADHD. So number one, make it easy for people to sign up. Completing lengthy step processes like filling in a form can be difficult for people with ADHD. Keep forms short and allow people to save and return later. It'll make it much more likely they'll get to the end. Number two, make it easy for people to log in. People with ADHD often have memory difficulties, so don't ask for a complex password and three memorable answers. There are other better ways to get people authenticated. Number three, help people feel at home. This is a broad one, but familiarity is super helpful for people with ADHD. Familiar navigation and design patterns reduce cognitive load. So if you're introducing a totally new concept or product, then support users through that familiarization process. Also, be mindful in your quest to make your product stand out. You aren't relying on super saturated colours, animations or illustrations to communicate important information, as all this can be overwhelming. The easiest way to design for people with ADHD and other neurodiverse behaviours is to include them in your product development process, involve them in research, in design, and also make sure that they're represented in your workforce. Hmm, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, as 5% of the population actually building capability to to support them, actually, it's very much like, you know, the, the measures that, um, uh, you know, people can take for, for general accessibility is is actually, it's it's a good measure for pretty much everybody in the, in that sense in terms of doing these things, right? But, I mean, Kate, what do you think on this one? It's a, it's a hard thing to, and actually, I mean, Ron Shevlin on uh, when we were speaking about uh, Buy Now, Pay Later, the last episode that I was on was talking about, look, you can't stop people doing things that they want to do with their money. But actually, I guess in a, in this instance where it might not be something that they would choose to do, then it's really difficult to manage, isn't it? It's a really difficult balance, yeah. And there's um, there's no obvious, like really easy fix. Otherwise, I think a lot of financial service institutions would, would apply it, right? Like, I mean, people don't set up these banks or these fintechs to create harm. But um, I think there was a lot of fanfare when we had the first implementations of the gambling blocks. I think Monzo did it first. And then we saw that being rolled out um, across other banks and fintechs. And everyone got very excited about that, partly because of what it achieved in itself, but also I think because people felt it showed the promise of expanding that that same ambition into other areas of people's lives where they, they struggle and where there's a, a real opportunity for the right kinds of friction to help people you know, stick to the you know, the financial intentions that they have in their clearest moments when they, when they when they're most sure of what, what it is they want to do and there's all sorts of reasons why people get uh, you know, moved away from those. Um, but I think we haven't really seen a huge amount of progress. We haven't really seen any more of these controls being rolled out more widely. And I'm, I'm sure that is because it is difficult. But yeah, I hope that a report like this, you know, as the Monzo clip says, I think actually putting numbers to it, like putting financial numbers to it, really helps to drive the, the case for, for change. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed, this will create a bit of momentum. Uh, and as you say, given that it's, you know, it's not a tiny part of the population, it's a large part of the population. Um, Hopefully we can we can push for more more in this space because, as you say, like the technology is there. You know, allowing people to set their own controls and create their own points of friction um, is possible. 
So it's, it's just trying to get that balance right. Yeah, I mean, I've got uh, I've got you and Silver, our group CTOs, sort of voice in my head here. It's like this is really easy. It's just a it's just an event, you know. And actually, actually, if you can look at the the customer record or the customer transaction. Uh, pattern previously and identify what looks like something out of the ordinary, then that event can have additional capability around it to go, uh, you know, is is this something, do you, do you need some help? Is this something that you really want to do? And and actually, I guess the, the challenge there, I mean, Jess, potentially in all of these things is you need to get people to opt into those types of services first, really. I think this is a really, really challenging point. And I, I like the comment previously where you ultimately cannot stop people from spending their own money. And if you deploy controls in the wrong way, what you might end up doing is actually stopping other vulnerable customers from accessing their own funds. So when you are thinking about these controls, it is a lot more complicated than you might think. And having worked with so many different firms some of the simple transaction monitoring controls that we have seen deployed are just not good enough to pick up these really nuanced spending patterns. To really pick this up effectively, it's got to be dynamic. It's got to be risk-based. It's got to be really, really closely linked to the, the customer's own profile. It's got to have some machine learning in there. It's got to really, really carefully focus on those specific typologies because otherwise what you could do is roll out a bunch of controls and end up hurting an, another set of your customer base by deploying too much friction. So it's, it's a real challenge. Mm, yeah, so it's a, um, a bit of a minefield, isn't it, from a brand perspective? Actually, people could be there to, you know, really have for all, you know, the, the right reasons, try and help people. But like you say, if you uh, you get in between somebody and their money, it's, uh, it's not a great place from a, the brand's perspective in that sense, is it? I, I think this is where... Um, I mean, not just in this sense, but actually trust is a really important thing in in all of these factors, isn't it? And actually, I think this is where, you know, moving, uh, shifting the sort of conversation slightly, but it's where many of the, the PFM tools, I think, have, have really struggled to have any material impact on anybody's financial life because I, I think don't, people just don't trust their organizations to give them that level of advice because uh, they haven't earned that trust in that sense. So, but but I guess this is where... Actually, if you create an opportunity, you create services around this and get people to, again, you know, you've got to admit there's a problem to start with to then get into it. The gambling blocking one is a, is a good example of that. I thought the way Monzo handled the communication around that was, uh, was particularly effective, wasn't it, in terms of it being something that was all their choice. Uh, and actually, the, you know, even the features around actually uh, you know, how you can turn it off or when you can turn it off or the cooling off period around those things. You know, it is creating guardrails for people who ask for it, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think something else, I totally agree with your points, Jess. I, I think it, it is very difficult. And I think maybe one of the key things that we need to try and move away from is seeing financial services as like this island, like this sole responsible gatekeeper for people's finances. Actually, you know, I think yeah, Ron was probably talking about buy now, pay later, I'm guessing. Um, you know, actually, retailers have a massive role to play in this as well. Like mm. it really, I think the probably that some of those more nuanced solutions that you're talking about, Jess, probably lie at that intersection between you know the the bank that you're using and the retailer that you're shopping with. Like actually, it probably should be easier for you to say, I'm going to go do a food shop. Which of these items do I deem as essential? And then you have things at checkout that prompt you to say, like you know, do you need 55 packets of crisps? Which is what I ordered last night. So. Um, but yeah, I think it's that intersection between financial services and other industries where I think we'll start to see some really exciting innovation come. Um, so that's my hope for the future. 
Very good. Andrea, uh, what do you think on this one? Is is this something that you guys at Crew have, uh, have considered? Obviously, you've got a, a, a social good angle to, as you described earlier on, around what you're trying to achieve. But um, but this is a, I mean, it's a very sensitive subject to, to engage in, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and, and I agree with everything you guys said. It's, it's really tricky, right, to find the right balance. So where where are we actually helping our customer and where are we running the risk of being intrusive in terms of telling them what to do or what not to do with their money? There are some simple things that can be done and, and, and we're already working on it as some other people, like as has been said before, raising awareness about that. Uh, it's, it's definitely something that can help, right? The, uh, keep in mind that you are a bank. So by being a bank, you know pretty much everything you need to know from a financial transaction perspective of your customer, not only the one that they have done, but also the ones that are coming up, right? So if there is a big payment coming up and the customer doesn't have enough balance, you as a bank know that, you can flash that to the customer, you can let them know, you can raise awareness that actually they need to be a bit more mindful with their money and hopefully you're raising their awareness about the situation and hopefully they, they will do something about that and they this can all lead to them avoiding to go into overdraft and pay an interest that they can avoid, right? And and the other element of that is that, and what's really fascinating about the time we're all living in is the technology, right? There are crazy new things that are developed every day. I was reading an article the other day. They are now finding different algorithms to identify whether someone is maybe drunk or is really irritated by the way you're engaging with your phone, the way you're touching the phone. And there is a software that is learning to do that. Like think potentially what that can be done, right? In terms of like enabling to, to have controls tailored and agreed with people to help them when they are in a situation of distress. And you can just pick it up by the way they engage with the phone. Um, I, th- I found it fascinating. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, given the the ability around monitoring of those things, and as you say, the the our ability to process that type of data is in, you know exponentially increasing as as well on the fly. It is going to be amazing to see how those measures start getting built into you know more and more things. You know, there are patterns around how you use your phone and how you type to say whether it is you or not. And I I have. Uh, I've seen a number of banks kind of experiment with those things, but uh, but yeah, they're, they're definitely going to be hitting mainstream soon, aren't they? All right, we are going to have to move on, and we reach the part of the show where uh, we try and round up some of the other stories because there's always so much happening every week that we just don't have time to cover everything over, but do want to give them a little bit of a shout out in terms of what's happening. Kate, do you want to pick up the first one? Yeah, absolutely. So this comes from CNBC. Uh, JP Morgan Chase tells employees the bank will pay for travel to states that allow abortion. Um, JP Morgan Chase, one of the largest employers in the US financial industry, told workers that it will pay for travel to states that allow legal abortions, according to a memo attained by CNBC. The news came as part of an internal communication to employers explaining expanded medical benefits set to begin in July. JP Morgan's announcement comes as the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the landmark ruling that established the constitutional right to abortion in the US in 1973. The expected result of that is that employees in states where the procedure is banned will have to travel to locations where it's still allowed. And before today, only rival bank Citigroup was known to provide the travel benefit for employees. Whoa, a nice light one to start us off. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're still waiting to see what the true fallout is going to be of the Supreme Court ruling in terms of you know, state-by-state access to abortion. But understandably, this is creating a huge amount of distress and uncertainty for US citizens. So, you know, city employees are lucky to have this reassurance to come out so quickly. But actually, I think these kinds of benefits just reinforce for me how wrong and unfair this ruling is. Like, it's not going to eliminate abortion in the US. 
it's just going to make it only available to those who happen to live in the right place or who have the means to travel. You know, my family come from Ireland. I know how this plays out. Um, you know, it's those who are worst off who are left to make the most desperate choices. So you know, credit to City for extending this to their employees, but you know, it really is you know, a, a Band-Aid on a, on a bullet hole, I suppose, to, to quote the song. But yeah, it's... Yeah, pros and cons. It's um, it's going to be interesting on this one, actually, how it... I mean, uh, the USA might have to rebrand because I'm not sure they're particularly united anymore, right, in terms of actually everything that's sort of going on. And the the difference between the, the sort of left and the right when it comes to these types of issues. I mean, by JP Morgan taking a, a stance on these types of things, is it essentially... Uh, is, the, is the bank saying they are pro-abortion, therefore they offer people who are pro-abortion or are they, do you know what I mean? It's like, it become, it's going to become incredibly polarizing, which is like, this is the bank for people who like this, or this is the bank who people don't like this. You know, we're, we do live in a time where people want their brands to, to represent them more and more, don't they, in that sense? And this, I, I feel like the, you know, this, this is going to become a, an increasingly polarizing argument for, for many people in the, in the US. And it isn't, um, my understanding of this in terms of the, this ruling doesn't just cover um, uh, abortion, but a number of other things that were actually taken into account as part of the legislation that was changed. So even down to things around same-sex marriage are going to start to be uh, unpicked because of these types of rulings being going forward, which is is going to be, you know, this is something that went in in 1973. Like, uh, I'm pretty sure all four of us weren't born, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, so actually, you know, we're going back over history and trying to rewrite things that actually are just fabrics of the the society it makes absolutely no sense at all yeah it's mad i it don't is. think we've got i don't think we've got time to to cover yeah. it but no it's I, it's a, as you say it, it is a bold move for for jp morgan in some respects yeah it's it's a divisive thing to do um yeah i suspect probably in the majority of their employees and the majority of their customers as you say are probably going to fall on one side of the divide. And actually, you know, I think before this ruling was announced, most of the analysis showed that the majority of Americans weren't, you know, weren't in support of it. You know, were in support of abortion rights remaining enshrined in the Constitution. So yeah, the the Supreme Court doesn't necessarily represent the US population either. So it's a very complex situation. And yeah, um next story here uh from UK Tech News. So SumUp has raised £507 million at a £6.8 billion valuation. So SumUp has raised €550 million Euros in a funding round that's landed the firm a valuation of €8 billion, Euros, or £6.8 billion in UK currency. Founded in 2012, SumUp provides payment solutions to small merchants. Its services include card readers, free business accounts and cards, online stores and invoicing solutions. The latest investment brings the total amount of funding raised by the unicorn up to £1.5 billion euros or 1.29 billion pounds. SumUp serves more than 4 million small businesses operating in 35 countries worldwide. So for more on this, we reached out to SumUp co-founder and CFO Mark Alexander Christ for more info. We're very proud to be able to announce this capital raise for SumUp in the current financial environment. We take this as a very strong testament to what we build as a company and the service we deliver to 4 million merchants across the world every day. It is important to note that we do not need this financial round. And when we set out to do this three months ago, the aim was to test the market in order to first give peace of mind to our investors, our employees and our lenders, and at the same time load out the coffin 
for potential M&A because we believe that in the current recession environment there will be plenty of opportunity for undergraduate growth, growth for summer. We started some about 10 years ago with the aim of helping small merchants across the world. And in fact, today, we are present in 35 countries, helping more than 4 million merchants run their business. In fact, our mission is a world where small businesses can be very successful doing what they love. And this is very much ingrained in our culture and lived by the 3,000 sum-uppers across the world. And there's a ton of small stories that show how much we care about our merchants and how we help them to succeed in the current environment. Um, yeah, I think Mark Alexander's point around how this fundraising was sort of a nice to have um, and how much he stresses that is, is, is pretty interesting given the conversation we've had around the difficulties of, of fundraising in this environment. Obviously, they're very keen to reiterate kind of their position of of strength um, and there's lots of uncertainty around how well digital businesses are holding up at the moment. So, yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. We've seen a huge shift towards small businesses adopting digital payment solutions. So I think there might be a tendency to think, well, everything's fixed. Here we go. Um, but you know, having just returned from a music festival where cash preferred signs were everywhere, um, which was a bit of a shock to the system. Um, obviously, there's still a lot to do to work out you know what merchants of all sizes need to be able to access from payment solutions in order to, to truly move over into the digital world. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of us. And it's the most I've used cash in, in ages. It mm. was quite quite a wake-up call. I imagine, Kate, knowing you, you asked why, right? Was it, a, was it a, because we like to, we don't have somebody else doing our taxes and we like to uh, do our own taxes, or was it like you're out in the middle of a field so there was no signal for a, you know, a square cash thing or whatever? Well, no, it was interesting, yeah. Quite a lot of them had a card provide you know, quite a lot of them had a card queue and a cash queue mm. so you kind of got an express cash queue wow. if you're if you're happy to pay cash so it was really it was really interesting i'm assuming it's just about margins you know they're trying to maximize their margin but yeah no, it was it was i didn't do any interrogating or any interviewing because i was trying to trying to dial that side of myself back did while you? I was away. you have yeah. that switch that's good to know well, some some of the time not all the time. <laughs> i mean to your point on the funding side though that is that is interesting isn't it is there's no there's no shortage of money flowing around the system still where investment is but because these these funds have been established and they have to get that money away you know it's essentially sitting there doing nothing so but maybe just people are being a lot pickier about what they're investing in and the the likely return of that or the the, the speed of the return of that, given everything that's happening in the market, hey? Um, I don't think it will be the last time we see a uh, and somebody raises a big amount of money headline on the show, though. So uh, what would we talk about, you know? All right. Well, uh, let's bring everybody back for the final section. Uh, this week, what we're going to be doing, uh, rather than the and finally story, is delving into the FinTech Insider mailbag. Uh, we've been asked over on our social channels to send in any questions that, that people would want for this quickfire round. Uh, the the questions have been sent into at FinTech Insiders, if you'd like to get involved. Uh, by all means, do fire them across there. Um, there's a bunch of interesting ones. Um, first up, there was a, if they were to make a all or nothing on FinTech uh, and all access behind the scenes uh, of a, a particular company, which company would you pick and why? I imagine you're a, a bit of a fan of the all or nothing series, aren't you, Kate? I don't want to like go down in your estimations anymore but I, I don't know what it is do you know what? oh like but you're a you're a big football fan though aren't you right is it football yeah yeah so like all or nothing is like a i think it's an amazon series that is basically like a it follows a particular football club for a season oh. and all of the backroom shenanigans and everything that goes on and you know pep giving a, a big team talk and jo, you know jose going crazy and all sorts of stuff 
I've got a vague recollection of seeing one that was about Sunderland. Um, and my husband is a Newcastle fan, so I think I suggested watching it and that got like very aggressively quickly. vetoed. Yeah. So that's probably why, but yeah. Do you know, I, I wouldn't be up for doing like an all or nothing uh, fintech version because that's a, li- a little bit like warts and all type thing. But I have often thought about 11FS's office doing like a, a remake of The Office just because I think that would be very entertaining. Like I think if any company could get away with doing a uh, like a, you know, a, a fake, you know, uh, sort of documentary thing, it'd probably be us, wouldn't it, in that sense? I mean, who are you casting yourself as? I mean, I'm not going Michael Scott before you say it. Like, that's not not the vibe that I'm going for. But, uh, but I mean, maybe. I said earlier on that my dancing skills are not great, but I reckon I could bang out Ricky Gervais' dance moves at the end of that. So let's uh, let's see. I think that's the 11th Fest Christmas party sorted. There right we there. go. Uh, Jess, Andrea, what do you reckon? Which which fintech do you think could do a kind of behind-the-scenes warts-and-all type uh, documentary? I mean, I'm pretty lucky because in our role, we do a lot of audits. So we see a lot of all or nothing. So I get a lot of insider knowledge anyway. Um, and I'm actually not going to put it out there with a name. They're all very interesting, for sure. Andrea, what do you think? Yeah, I was about to say crew, but like now they just said, I'm not going to make any name. Yeah, I'll stick to that. I think I think it will be interesting for, for most of those. Do you know what? I'd, I'd actually like it. So see, maybe, uh, it, maybe into the government. Uh, what was the uh, in the thick of it? Like, I want to see Rishi Sunak and uh, John Glenn kind of, re- like, reenacting some of those things in, in the way in which uh, In the Thick of It was. Because that, that was a great series. We need a, we need a sort of a modern-day version of it, don't we, in that, in that sense, with the, the world we live in. So uh, there was a second question here. Can any neobank successfully uh, expand internationally into China? This is a, a question from Ali Patterson. Um, what do you think, Kate? Can, can any international company break into China? I mean, I'm... Not a Chinese expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm sceptical. Like, I think actually it's probably more interesting to see which Chinese brands can successfully come out of China. Um, I think, you know, we've seen the likes of, you know, Alipay, like, look to expand internationally, and that's had repercussions for how they're regarded by the the Chinese state. Um, So I think, obviously, if the Chinese state position shifts, then everything could shift because China is such a huge market and such an attractive market for so many ways, I'm sure fintechs would be tripping over themselves to be able to get in there. But, um, you know, one of my friends worked at a, a tech startup that wanted to open an office in in China, and he said it's like the most difficult thing he's done in his whole career. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, I think from a uh, from a regulatory perspective and, and from a government perspective, I don't think they're going to be pro-international businesses establishing themselves, particularly when it comes to people's financial lives, right? It, it doesn't sound like uh, the type of thing that they would be particularly up for. I mean, Jess, what do you think? Is, there, is it likely that uh, kind of an international business will establish in a major way in, in China? More broadly than just fintech, if I'm honest with you. I think that... <laughs> I, I'd have to agree with what Sir said. I mean, from a regulatory compliance, financial crime perspective, I'm not sure if you would want to go that way. Um, we've worked with quite a few firms that have come out of China having used some different Chinese tools, lots of identity tools, which have now been sanctioned because of the identity things they've been doing with the, the Uyghur population. So I i don't think, I think it'd be very difficult, but also from a regulated compliance perspective, it'd be challenging. Yeah. Ch- challenging is a very polite British way of saying it's very unlikely, isn't it? So, uh, all right, the last 
question that we have is, how can fintech save the planet, uh, asks Sarah, which is a pretty broad question in that sense. So, Andrew, what, what do you reckon? Is this something that, obviously, uh, uh, again, with your, your agenda, this is something that you're, you're looking to, to help impact the, the, the positive uh, side of, uh, of changing the planet in terms of people's financial lives? But what do you think? I think I think every company can 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 play their part and and, and do their bit in type of saving the planet, right? And like um, at Crew, we are definitely trying to do that. Uh, and uh, you can, I'm really actually happy to see more and more company, not necessarily only fintech, now taking a keen interest on actually doing something good. At the end of the story, that's the only planet we have. Well, for now at least, um, guess no idea what's happening in the future, but the only one we have, we are all sharing that. I think it's our own responsibility to do something. So short answer is yes, I think fintech and any other company can can save the planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting. This one is like, um, what are we saving the planet from? Like the sad thing, the sad reality is it's probably we're saving the planet from us, right? You know, like actually we're probably the, yeah. and this is get a really depressive end to this podcast, isn't it? We usually have fun at the end, of it, <laughs> but it's like the biggest threat to, to the planet is like our activity. It's like what we do on a day-to-day basis, which is, it's pretty terrifying. I mean, at least we live in an era where actually you know, um, people are, are finally doing things seriously about carbon emissions. The the sort of a green agenda in terms of ESG funds are are actually you know not only a good thing to do, but they're actually more profitable than than other funds that are investing in uh, more kind of old fashioned sensors and that. And actually, we are now seeing more interesting things around uh, bringing to to the fray, uh, bringing to to kind of decision points from a data perspective around actually the the um, green levels of um or the uh the the positive or negative effect the the places that you're buying uh, your goods from are actually sort of doing i know natwest have, have piloted a um a capability and there are a lot of other organizations out there doing it so i mean as it becomes more and more important to the to the public and as they start spending their money you know based on this then i think it will become more and more critical to companies what do you think Cope? Yeah, no, I agree. I think the main thing that I would love to see, which I think at the moment is very murky and obscure, so I suppose is you know, where your money goes. You know, like when you put your savings in an account, obviously to the ordinary customer, you just think, my savings are sat in the bank, but they're not. They're going to that bank who is then using that money to do other things and to make investments. And at the moment, I have no idea where my money is going. Um, and I'd love to see that change. I'd love to see customers actually be able to see where their money is going and to therefore, I'm sure, influence some of the things that are being invested in because I'm sure if I knew a lot of the things that my money is going to I probably wouldn't be very happy yeah so, I mean that would be interesting because the the sort of ethical sense of that in terms of the lending that that organization then did to what types of businesses and you know what types of people it would be that would be a the transparency that would come between I mean it, that's a almost a a breaking down of the transparency of the whole of the the banking business model isn't it in that sense Bring it all down. <laughs> yeah. But I think the most important thing that fintech should do is we need to just find a way to keep Sir David Amber alive for as long as possible. I think that's ditch all of our new features and services. We just need to preserve like, him. preserve him for as yeah. long as we can. He'll, he's gonna he's gonna keep us going. I think I, I believe in him. Oh goodness! I mean, there's been a, like fraud, and we're we're ending the show on you know the thinking about the mortality of Sir David Amber. Like I'm. Feel like we need to go and have a drink after this one, don't we, really? But uh, we will be back next week. We're going to be a lot more upbeat, I promise you. Uh, but that does wrap up this week's news show. Thank you so much to, to our guests for joining us. Where can people learn a little bit more, starting with you, Kate? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, at K8Moody. 
Um, but I'll probably be spending most of my time now Googling who Ken Dodd is to try and try and pull that back. you got a fun weekend ahead of you. Yeah. Jess? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn as well. So Jessica Kath and also on the Fintrail website for fintrail.com. Very good. Andrea, where can people learn more? Oh, same as the others. LinkedIn, that's just my name, Andrea de Gottardo, and the crew website, crew.com. Very good. As for me, you can find me lurking on LinkedIn mostly these days as well. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to join the conversation, head over to social media or email us on podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye.